Scripture reading this morning is Philippians chapter 2, the first 11 verses. Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels of mercy and mercies, fulfill ye my joy that ye be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Look not not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Now, if I may pause just a moment, very practical exhortation about unity and humility in the church of Christ. Exhortations to all of us that speak to life in the church. Why? Why? Verse 5 says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's on the basis of that passage, especially verses 5 and following, that we have the teaching of Lord's Day 14 in the Catechism, found in the back of the Psalter on page 9. Lord's Day 14, questions 35 and 36, continuing the explanation of the Apostles' Creed, 35 asks, what is the meaning of these words? He was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, that God's eternal Son, who is and continueth true and eternal God, took upon Him the very nature of man of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, by the operation of the Holy Ghost, that he might also be the true seed of David, like unto his brethren in all things, sin accepted. What profit dost thou receive by Christ's holy conception and nativity? That he is our mediator, and with his innocence and perfect holiness covers in the sight of God my sins, wherein I was conceived and brought forth. 
Lord's Day 14 is teaching the doctrine of the incarnation. Incarnation. That is, God came into our flesh. You children know that word incarnation because in that word is the word carnis or carnivore. You learn early on in school that an animal that eats flesh is called a carnivore. And so you see that word or like that word in the word incarnation. And the doctrine of the incarnation is that God came into our flesh. And when we respond to that, we say with the Apostle Paul when he wrote to Timothy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. That's the truth of the Word of God before us this morning. The doctrine of the incarnation. God was manifested in the flesh. That truth is so important that the Apostle John says that if you deny it, you're Antichrist. If you deny it, you are driven by the spirit of Antichrist. If a man does not confess that Jesus Christ is come into the flesh, he's not of God. And then John goes on to say, this is the spirit of Antichrist, which is already in the world. The doctrine of the incarnation is that important. It's important very doctrinally, but doctrinally in a very practical way. If you, for example, can't figure out how a man could take five loaves and two fishes and multiply them so that they could feed 5,000 people, it's not so difficult to understand when you realize that that man is God. If you can't figure out how he could take a man that was lame from his birth and make him walk, then all you need to know is that that man who did that was God, and God is able to do all those miracles. If you have a hard time believing the truth that this man who was crucified on a cross and died, and the proof of his death is in part that they pierced his side with a sword, and then they put him in a grave. If you have a hard time imagining that that man could rise from the dead, then all you need to do is remember that that man was also God. The incarnation is that God took upon himself the form of a man. But the importance of this doctrine is not merely that and many other things where we are able now to figure out what the Bible teaches, but that doctrine is so important because that doctrine introduces you to a friend, a friend who's like you, a friend whom the Proverbs describes sticks closer than a brother. I use that expression in my congregational prayer this morning. I think you remember the language of it. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. A man that hath friends must show himself to be friendly is the first part of that proverb. And then the proverb goes on to say, and there is a friend 
that sticketh closer than a brother. The incarnation is the doctrine that introduces you to your closest friend. Imagine that I'm doing that this morning. Just imagine for a moment that you don't know someone who's going to become your friend. That you don't have any idea what he or she is like. And someone else comes to you and say, I would like you to meet my friend. I'd like you to know about him or about her. In your mind, this morning, as we hear the doctrine of the incarnation, listen to the Word of God with that attitude. This is the one who is the friend that sticks closer than a brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. I remember in Jamaica many years ago, we went there and they sang many of the folk songs, the, the black folk songs, the hill country folk songs. And one of them they sang with all the enthusiasm that they could muster was, there is a friend that sticketh closer than a brother. That's the word of God to you today. Why that? in connection with the Incarnation, because God came down to live among us and be, in that way, a friend who can listen to you, who can speak to you, and who can give you help, which He could not have had He not become man. So listen to the Word of God this morning as it comes from Hebrews, Jesus took part in the flesh and blood of men. The Word of God in the Gospel according to John. And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The Word of God that we read in Philippians chapter 2. He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death. Listen to that word of God explained today. That's what the catechism is teaching in Lord's Day 14. God's eternal Son took upon him the very nature of man, of the flesh and blood of the Virgin Mary, that he might be the seed of David, like unto his brethren, in all things, except, except sin. So that's the theme of the sermon this morning. Jesus, like us, except. And so in the first point of the sermon, I want to explain the biblical teaching that He's like us, just like us. And the second point, explain the biblical teaching that there's one thing that's different between Him and us, and that is that He has no sin, not of nature, not of anything. No actions, no original sin at all. And then, in the third place, spell out how He's able to help us because of that. If He weren't like us, He would not understand us and therefore would not be able to help us. So His likeness, His difference, and His grace. His likeness can be understood very simply by saying three clear 
easily remembered statements. Number one, he is a real man. Number two, he is a complete man. And number three, he is a humbled man. That now I want to explain. He's a real man. He's a complete man. And he is a humbled man. He's a real man is what the church confessed about him early on in the history of the New Testament church because there were heresies. And one of the heresies said he looks like us, but he wasn't really one of us. There's a name for that. You don't need to know the name of that, but that heresy. But that heresy came in part from a misunderstanding of Philippians chapter 2. He took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, they said. He looked like you and me. He had our form, but he wasn't a real man. The problem with that is that verse 6 says that he is also in the form of God. And that does not mean that he looked like God in some way. He was God. And so also Philippians chapter 2 is teaching that not only did he look like a man, he is a man, a real man. That's why Paul said in 1 Timothy 2 verse 5, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Jesus Christ. The Bible is clear, the man, Jesus Christ. He is that because he was born of the Virgin Mary. And that's what we're explaining in the Apostles' Creed this morning. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only begotten Son, our Lord. Jesus, Lord's Day 11. Christ, Lord's Day 12. His only begotten Son, our Lord, Lord's Day 13. Now Lord's Day 14, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He is a man because He was born of a woman. He didn't receive his human nature somewhere else. He received his human nature from Mary. He wasn't an alien who was implanted in her womb. He came from her. He probably looked like her. He spent nine months in her womb developing because he needed to be just like us. If he didn't need to be just like us, That didn't need to happen. Nine months gestation. Natural birth. He wasn't an alien. If he were an alien not like us, then probably the Bible story would be that Mary found him in a dumpster because he was abandoned by someone and she adopted him to be her own son. No, she became pregnant. She bore her only, her firstborn son like her. So when the gospel accounts trace Jesus' ancestry, it traces, they trace Jesus' ancestry all the way back to Adam to show that he was like us in all things, the true seed of David, a real man. Second, he was a complete man, and that's a necessary statement because early in the New Testament history, there were other heretics who said, He was a real man, but there were parts of him that weren't human. That is, he was mostly like us, but not all like us. And that heretic denied what Hebrews 2 says, 
like unto his brethren in all things. All things. That heresy said he had a human body, but he didn't have a human soul. But our confession, according to the word of God, is he had a human body, human soul, human mind, human will. Everything about him was human. He fully entered into human life. Just think about that, children, for a moment. He was born just like you were born. Just like you. There were months and a couple of years when he could do nothing except be helpless. And then he began to giggle and gurgle and mumble and say a few things. He had to learn them. And then when he got to be five years old, perhaps he went to school and he had to learn the alphabet and he had to obey his teachers and be friends with other people that he was with. That's why Luke 2 verse 40 says that the child grew. He didn't just appear. He grew. He waxed strong in spirit. Waxed means grew, like you see the sliver of the moon now in the sky. Is it waxing or waning? You figure that out. Waxing means it's going to get bigger. The child grew and waxed strong in spirit, filled with wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. Hebrews 2 is decisive. He was like us in all things. He was a complete man. And then third, he was like us even in that he was a humbled man, a humbled human nature. Philippians 2 brings that out, doesn't it? In so many different ways. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God because he was. We'll come to that. But then he made himself of no reputation. You have a reputation among men? He didn't. He took on him the form of a king? No, of a servant. He was made in the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself. Don't imagine that Jesus was like Adam before the fall, striding through creation in all of his dignity as a king and a lord of all creation. Don't imagine Jesus as an angel who was strong in every respect, the strongest of all men. Imagine Jesus as like us, just like us. All of us have issues, as they say. All of us have our weaknesses. He had weaknesses, not sins. But he wasn't a strong man. He was a humbled man, a weakened man. He got hungry. He got thirsty. He was tired. He was exhausted, he got lonely, he suffered, he cried, and he died. That's Jesus. He's an ordinary Joe, as some would say. If you'd see him, you wouldn't recognize him as any different than anyone else. And if you would do Ancestry.com with him, you'd find all kinds of ugly things in his parentage. You'd go back and find Gentiles and prostitutes and others. Ashamed he might be as we would be if we found them in our ancestry. His hometown, nothing to speak of. In fact, it was despised. Nazareth. He came with the status and the reputation of a servant. He may well as well have been found in a dumpster. He was born 
of a virgin and laid in a manger. A real man, a complete man, and a humbled man. And he became that, though he also was God. Now we take another step. You mustn't imagine that the God who came down from heaven and became man ceased at that point from being God. He remained God. If you have your Psalter open, then look and see that it could have said God's eternal Son took upon him the very nature of man. Now that's what we've taught so far. God's eternal Son took upon him the very nature of man. But you see what I missed there. It's not in parenthesis either. It's separated by commas, and it's very important. God's eternal Son, who is and remains, continues true and eternal God. God's Son, when he came down and became a man, did not stop being God. He is God. And that's why Luke 1 says what it does. That holy thing born of thee shall be called the Son of God. God. And then read again what we read in Philippians chapter 2. You read of equality with God. Now it's a very difficult expression. In the end of verse 6, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. And there are many different translations of that. All you need to know for now is that he is and remains equal with God. Very difficult to understand. That's what you must confess. When he ascended up into heaven, he didn't stop being a man. He's still a man, a glorified man. And when he came down from heaven to become a man, he did not stop being God. That's amazing. That's why 1 Timothy 3 says, great is the mystery of godliness. The mystery is great. It is. It's a marvelous truth. It can't be comprehended by human mind. It needs to be revealed to you. And revelation is the act of God whereby He uncovers truth But even when he uncovers truth, he needs to do something to the one who sees that truth, and that is open his eyes. And that's why the unbeliever doesn't believe this truth, that God became man. How did that happen? It's a mystery to us. And even when God does show it to us, we still can't understand it fully. But can you understand how your children were born or how you were born? How two cells came together and developed in the womb of your mother and developed into a human being and then you became what you are today. I can't comprehend that. We're fearfully and wonderfully made, Psalm 139 says. And then to imagine that God came down and entered into the womb of a virgin and spent nine months there, nine months in that womb, and then was born and apparently completely helpless and had to learn all of these things. It's a mystery. I say again, it's a mystery that revelation is needed to reveal and faith is required to believe. Unbelief will never know and then it becomes just a matter of our confession. Great is the mystery of godliness is preceded by and without controversy 
great is the mystery of godliness. Literally, that is confessedly. And so we make this our confession. I believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary, like us. There's one respect, though, in which he is not like us, and that is he has no sin. His humanity is a sinless humanity. In every other respect, he's like us, but not in that respect. So the catechism makes that plain. It speaks in Lord in question 36 of his innocence. It speaks there of his perfect holiness. And it speaks in Lord's Day 5 with regard to God's eternal Son by the operation of the Holy Spirit made like us in everything except sin. So there's the emphasis now in this point. Luke 1 speaks of that. Hebrews 4 speaks of that. That's now what we're explaining in this point. Yet without sin, that holy thing conceived in you, Mary, is the Son of God. He's a holy thing. He's innocent. Well, what do we mean by His sinlessness? We mean, very simply, He had no original sin and He had no actual sin. No original sin, that is no legal tie to Adam, whose first sin was imputed to all of his descendants except Christ. No legal connection to Adam, so that his guilt is imputed to him, and no physical connection to Adam. He did through Mary, but he had no pollution, no sinful nature. And then, with regard to his actual life, he never committed one sin. When he went to school, children, he never talked back to his teacher. He was never mean to any of the other children. When he saw someone being bullied, he stood up for the one bullied because failure to act when you see sin being committed is as serious as committing the sin yourself. Jesus never sinned. He didn't ever idolize anything but his Father in heaven. When he went to church, he thought about every word. He never cursed or swore. And when the Sabbath came, he rested. He did. He obeyed his Father and he honored his mother. As long as his Father lived, we don't know how long he lived. He said, yes, Dad, I will do it. And I will do it immediately. He didn't hate his neighbor. He protected his neighbor's life. He lived purely. He never looked at a woman with a sinful thought in his mind. He never used an off-colored joke. Whatever possessions he had, he was a good steward of. He never stole, but he gave. And when he talked about other people, he spoke the truth in love. That's the life of Jesus. He had no original sin, and he had no actual sin. And the explanation of that is as important as the truth of that. Why is it that he had no sin, original sin, or 
actual sin. The Roman Catholics will tell you something that's very different than what we teach. The Roman Catholics will say, he was without sin because his mother was without sin. And that's why they teach that she was conceived immaculately. The immaculate conception of Mary, they say, is the explanation for the sinlessness of Mary's son. And that justifies then their worshiping Mary too, because she was unlike any of us. She had no sin either. That's not the truth. And then if you read the Belgian Confession, and you may do that this afternoon, that would be profitable, you understand that when the Belgian Confession talks about the human nature of Jesus, it does so in opposition to the Anabaptists. You ought to know about the Anabaptists. They were revolutionaries, and the Roman Catholic authorities were punishing the Reformers because the Roman Catholic authority thought the Reformers and the Anabaptists were the same. And so when Guido de Bray wrote the Belgian Confession, he distanced himself and Reformed faith from the Anabaptists, who had many, many errors, one of which was the teaching that Jesus didn't get his human nature from Mary. The human nature of Jesus was specially created, implanted in her womb, so she, somewhat as a surrogate mother, raised someone else's child. And we believe the Bible teaches us that he got his human nature from Mary, from her. Menno Simons was an Anabaptist. Menno is spelled M-E-N-N-O, And he is the father of the Mennonites today, Amish kind of people. They were the Anabaptists. And Menno Simon said, How then could such a glorious fruit be plucked from such a stinking elder tree and such a stinking thorn bush? That was his rhetorical question. It couldn't. A stinking elder tree, Mary, could not produce a pure thing like Jesus. Therefore, Menno Simons concluded, God implanted a nature specially created in her womb. And against the Roman Catholics and against the Anabaptists, we say there's a different explanation for his sinlessness. And the first explanation is more problematic and very difficult to imagine. There's difference of opinion. And that is that because his person was the Son of God and not a human person, the guilt of Adam was not imputed to him. But put that aside for a moment and think of this. That because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, what Mary produced was a holy thing. And that's a mystery too. Somehow, you think, as it were, that the Holy Spirit filtered out the sinfulness of Mary's nature so that what she produced was a sinless child. Matthew 1, don't be afraid. The angel said to Mary, to Joseph, take to you Mary your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. Mysterious, We confess it, we believe it, though we don't fully understand it. He was like us in everything except sin. And that's why he's able to help you. 
That's why he's able to be your friend who's closer than any brother or sister you may have. He's able to listen to you, understand you, not interrupt you, not pay attention to someone else while you're speaking. And then after he's heard you cry to him, he's able to give you good counsel, and more than good counsel, he's able to help you in all of your needs, able to succor you, as we saw in the book of Hebrews says, which simply means help. This is what our Lord Jesus is for us. He stooped from heaven to earth to be with us so that he could listen to us and then speak to us and then help us. He sweat and he bled and he cried and he lost things and he was wounded. Is there any more amazing display of the goodness and grace of God than in the incarnation? God himself came down to live with us. He tabernacled among us. He listened to us. He suffered with us. And now he's our friend who can help us. Isn't that the doctrine of the covenant, first of all? What we believe is the biblical doctrine of the covenant that God is a friend of his people. He established a a relationship of friendship that's just like the relationship of a man to his wife, except infinitely better. Pure, perfect, without any sin. He's our friend, the Bible teaches. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Literally, put up his tent among us. So that just as in the Old Testament, God said, build a tent and put it right in the center of all of you. And I am going to come down and live among you. And he did. And the Shekinah, the glory of God, shone among them and guided them. And from there, God spoke to them and listened to them and helped them. And then... In the fullness of time, the reality of that tabernacle came to pass when God himself came down in the womb of a virgin and became a man just like us to tabernacle right in the center of us, not off in the fringes somewhere, but right in the center of humanity. And that's why you will find in the Essentials Catechism book that strange expression where Reverend Hooksma asks you the characteristics of Christ's human nature and includes in it not only real and complete and humbled, but also central. And the explanation of that is not of a specific Bible text, but of this reality that Jesus came down and lived right in the middle of humanity, just like us in everything. And that's the covenant. He says to you, I'm your friend. I'm coming to help you. And I'm going to be near you. That's the incarnation. Remember, there is a friend that sticks closer to a brother. And this brother, 
The Lord Jesus doesn't say, well, let's FaceTime because I don't have time to be with you. He says, I'm coming and I'm going to be very near you. In fact, I'm going to come to live in you. And that means not among you, although he is among us, but he comes to live in you. That's the doctrine of the covenant. He's helpful simply because he's here. Sometimes children, when you're in trouble and you need help, the most important thing for you to have is that dad or mom simply comes home comes home. You sometimes don't need them to say anything or give you anything. They just need to be by you. And that's the teaching of Jesus as a friend too. He's here. But Jesus does more than a parent who just comes home. He's able to listen and he's able to help. And he first of all is able to help because being like us, he's able to give us his own life. He's able to give us, as it were, a transfusion. Now, don't stumble over that analogy, but let it serve its purpose. He's able to give his own life to you because he's like you. Think of a transplant of a heart. You need someone who's like you, whose blood type is like yours, and whose genetic makeup probably is like yours. We understand that even in human terms of transferring some of you to someone else. A-type people donate blood to other A-type people. And B to B and whatever the science is, you understand it. Jesus is able to give us his life exactly because he's like us in everything. Human mind, human will, human soul, human body, human thinking, human feelings. He's like us. And then he's able not only to give us his life so that the life we live is the life of the Son of God... Philippians or Galatians, but he's able to help. And I'm referring to help us go through whatever trial God sends us, to bear whatever burden God puts on you, and resist all of the temptations that you face as men and women. Temptations to despair, temptations to be bitter, temptations to give up, Temptations to be angry, temptations to say it's no use. Why continue as a Christian? Why continue in this marriage? Why continue taking care of my children? Why continue as a member of the church that I'm a member of? He's able to help you. And he's able to help you because he's been there. Young people, do you ever have it that you'd like a friend A real friend who'd be able to listen to you, who'd be able to sit down and talk to you and really listen. And while you're talking to them, they're not looking past you at other people that they like to be talking and they're really not listening to you. Would you like that kind of friend who then, having listened to you, is able to give you good counsel, wise counsel? How about inspired counsel? And then having given you counsel, has something to give you more to help you and strengthen you to do what you need to do and bear the burdens that you bear and endure the trials that you have. Well, this is the gospel. There is a friend, Proverbs says, I say again, 
that sticks closer than a brother. He's a faithful friend. He listens. He understands. And he doesn't charge any money. He's a counselor. He's your God. And don't say, well, he wouldn't really understand because he never committed sin. And when he faced temptations, he had no ability to fall into sin. So how can he help me? Well, that brings up a very important matter. And the very important matter is the teaching that you don't have to have sinned a certain sin in order to help other people who have fallen into that sin. Because if that were required of a counselor, then Jesus is of no help to you because he never committed the sin of drunkenness or fornication or addiction to anything. He never did. But he's able to help you because he faced temptation. All the temptations that you face and never once fell into them and therefore felt the force of those temptations far more then you feel the force of them. But he's able to help you. And then when you call him, and you do call upon him, then say to yourself, I need someone to speak to me from him. And you dial up the phone number of the minister or an elder or a parent or a teacher, then whatever that minister or elder or parent or teacher does, make sure he does this. Not talk about himself, but point you to Jesus. I'm going to listen, but I want you to know that Jesus is listening. And I am going to give you counsel but I want you to know that whatever counsel I give you that doesn't harmonize with Jesus' words is bad counsel. And then I stop because what I can't do is help you. I can listen. I can speak for Jesus. But now you go home and you must trust Him to be the one who's able to succor you in your needs. And He's able to because He's like you. He's able to help you. And not just you young people and children, but all of you, adults too. He knew the temptation to quit. Jesus did. When the going got so, so bad that he sweat great drops of blood and wanted to take a different path. God, if there's any way that I can take a different path. And he went all the way to the end. He's able to help you, adults. When you're alone... Maybe you're alone because you're suffering for Christ. Your spouse left you. And you're not going to remarry because you believe the Bible teaches you ought not remarry. And you are alone. Then remember Jesus, who was alone and never married. His disciples left him. His family didn't understand him. He's able to listen and then speak to you and then give to you the help that you need because He's like you. When Paul says to the church at Philippi, let not every man think, look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. 
you may know that this man is not thinking about himself. What can I get out of you? But he's thinking about you. Let this mind be in you when you live together. The mind that was in Christ. Who, though he were God, and is God, came down to help us, to be like us, and to minister to us, and didn't think about his own things, but the things of others. So that's the doctrine of the Incarnation. And if you ever believe that there's no help for you, if you ever conclude that you can't do it, then remember what the angel said to Mary when the angel said, you're going to be pregnant, but you're not going to know a man. The angel said, because with God everything is possible. Because with God nothing is impossible. And let that be the conclusion that you come to also in your life when it looks to be impossible. Jesus is there. He's like you. He had no sin. His sinlessness in it, he paid for your sin. And that's a manifestation of his love and a manifestation of his willingness to do what you need when you call upon him. Amen. Our Father which art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word. We thank thee for Jesus who is thy word, who dwelt among us. Bless us by him. Bless us by his word. And bless us, Father, in such a way that when we go home, we do not think about other men or women, but think about the Lord Jesus, thy son, and look to him so that we may be succored in time of great need. Forgive us as we forgive each other. Humble us as the Lord Jesus Christ humbled himself. And teach us to be a selfless people who now too, when we leave this sanctuary and go into the hall where we fellowship, we are thinking not on our own things, but on the things of others. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.